please. As Clifford's dropped something there. Come with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. <laughs> Clifford's determined to break this microphone. He's dropped it twice already. <laughs> All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then let me read just two more scriptures that you don't have to read. Hebrews 4.14 Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And in Revelation 3, verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. title of the message this morning is Don't Let Go. Whatever you do, don't let go. There is a tendency in most of us at any rate to allow things in our lives to kind of slip and slide. Many of us, when it comes to dieting, uh, we find it hard to maintain a constant watch on our waistlines. For others, perhaps it's getting behind in their studies and their schoolwork and they always seem to be playing catch-up. Last-minute merchants say they work better under pressure, but they're always trying to catch up. For others, it's maybe the resolve to do something or indeed the resolve not to do something that kind of drifts and slips and slides. And the Bible does remind us that there is the same tendency in us when it comes to spiritual things. There's a tendency to let even spiritual things drift and slip and slide. We begin well enough and we lay hold on eternal life and we hold fast for a while, for a season, for a time. And then we relax our grip. Before we know it, Things are slipping and sliding, and we're drifting. Do we hold fast the confession of our faith, as the scriptures say? Or do we simply let God's graces slip and slide? There are many shades of meaning in these terms hold fast or lay hold of, means to hold firmly. It means to hold with a special purpose or to watch over or to give heed to or to appropriate all the benefits and the blessings and the responsibilities and the privileges uh, that are involved in the taking of it. So I want to talk to you today about don't let go, not letting go of the things in your life that are vitally important to us 
particularly as Christians. Lay hold on eternal life, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy. Now, to the non-believer, even though he was writing to believers, in fact, he was writing to a pastor, but there's a principle here that applies even to the non-believers. God offers his gift of salvation. He offers his gift of life. But you have to lay hold of it. You have to take heed to it. You have to reach out and take it. If there's a little box, quite a nice little box, says Jesus on it, so that's good, isn't it? Uh, that's a gift I'm going to give to my good friend Clifford. So I reach him that gift, but he has to take it. He could sit there with his hands folded. He's good at, he's good at receiving Clifford, by the way. <laughs> he's learned the art of receiving. <laughs> he could sit there and say, that's too much. You couldn't give me that. We, we're kind of like that in Northern Ireland, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. That's right. People are often say, oh, that's too much. You shouldn't do that. I find myself doing that too. But if I reach him or anyone a gift, then it's up to that person to receive that gift. Because otherwise, if he doesn't appropriate it, it's not going to bless him. It's not going to do him any good. There'll be no pleasure in it for him. And he'll miss what I'm trying to give him as a gift. Now, there's a difference in the gift that we give and the gift that God gives. There's, there's a difference in the giving that we do than what God does. For instance, if I gave Clifford a gift, it would be because I really like him. I don't want to bless him because I really like him. You may give a gift to somebody because you feel they deserve it. They've been particularly nice. They've been particularly good. So therefore, they deserve it. But God's gift is not like that. His giving's not like that. He gives to us who least deserve it, who do not deserve it. He doesn't give it to us because we're good enough and we should get it and we deserve it and it's a right to get it. He gives it because of his love and his grace and his mercy. That's the only reason he gives it. And that's the only way we can receive it. I'm not going to give you that box, Clifford. Of that, of that earmark for somebody else, by the way. <laughs> There's nothing in it either. <laughs> I'm an Indian giver. I give it in one hand, take it back in the other. <laughs> I read this the other day, and I thought this was apropos to the message this morning. At the University of Chicago Divinity School, each year <clears throat> they have what is called Baptist Day. On this day each year, sorry, on this day, each one is to bring a lunch to be eaten outdoors in a grassy picnic area. And every Baptist day, the school would invite one of the greatest minds to lecture in the Theological Education Center. And one year they invited Dr. Paul Tillich. And Dr. Paul Tillich was a theologian, but he was a very woolly theologian. He was a, a modernistic theologian. Most of the Bible here actually didn't believe. And so they invited Dr. Tillich. Dr. Tillich spoke for two and a half hours, proving that the resurrection of Jesus was false. 
He quoted scholar after scholar and book after book. He concluded that since there was no such thing as a historical resurrection, the religious tradition of the church was groundless, emotional mumbo-jumbo because it was based on a relationship with the risen Christ who, in fact, never rose from the dead in any literal sense. He then asked if there were any questions. So after about 30 seconds, an old dark-skinned preacher with a head of short-cropped woolly white hair stood up in the back of the auditorium. Dr. Tillage, I got one question. He said as all eyes turned towards him. He reached into his sack lunch and pulled out an apple and began eating it. Dr. Tillage, crunch munch. <laughs> My question is simple, crunch munch. Now, I ain't never read them books you read, crunch munch. And I can't recite the scriptures in the original Greek, crunch munch. I don't know nothing about Nabor and Heidegger, crunch munch. He finished the apple. All I want to know is, this apple I just ate, was it bitter or was it sweet? Dr. Tillich paused for a moment and answered in exemplary scholarly fashion, I can't possibly answer that question for I haven't tasted your apple. The white-haired preacher dropped the core of his apple into his crumpled bag, looked up at Dr. Tillich and said calmly, Neither have you tasted my Jesus. <laughs> The 100 plus in attendance could not contain themselves. The auditorium erupted with applause and cheers. Dr. Tillage thanked the audience and promptly left the platform. Psalm 34 and 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Song of Solomon 2 verse 3, I sat down in his shade with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes in me shall never thirst. But how does an unbeliever taste and see? By faith. There is no other way other than by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that none of us can boast. Spurgeon said that faith is the soul's taste. Faith is the soul's taste. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, there's your faith, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You would have asked him. And that would take faith. Because she was struggling. She says, well, the well is deep. And you've got no bucket. So how are you going to give me living water? 
She was thinking of that cool, refreshing water at the bottom of that deep well. But Jesus was thinking of something far superior, wasn't he? And he says, if you had asked me, I would have given you real, true, living water. And she did ask, and she did receive. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Faith is the soul's taste. Romans 10.13, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so an unbeliever has simply got to, by faith, repent of their sins, turn to Christ, and by faith, ask Him and receive Him as their Savior and their Lord, and He will give them that living water of life. He'll give them the right to be called the sons of God. What about the believer? Paul said to Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. It means to lay hold of with a special purpose to, in a practical way, to appropriate all the benefits and the privileges and the responsibilities that are involved in it and taking possession of it. I think this is what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul said that I may, verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as mature, are mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Did you get what Paul was saying? He says, all that Christ has laid hold on me for, he says, I haven't quite laid hold of that yet. But he says, I'm pressing on on the journey to get there. I haven't apprehended every, I haven't laid hold on everything that Christ has laid hold of me for, but I'm going after it. With all my energy, with all my strength, with every bit of power in me, I am going after all that God has got for me. That's what he's saying. I haven't got there yet, but I'm going after it. I want to lay hold of it. I want to grab it. Well, what was he talking about? Well, of course, there's Many things, Ephesians chapter 3, just back a little bit there. 
Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of him. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Boy, there's so much in those first couple of chapters of Ephesians that we can lay hold of, that we can reach out to receive from God's storehouse. Paul was writing after 30 years and he still says that I might know him. The great apostle, the greatest teacher the church ever had, the greatest revelation that God ever gave a man, the greatest missionary apostle ever and yet after 30 years of walking closely with the Lord and having revelations and visions and all of that and seeing mighty miracles, he still says that I might know him. I haven't fully got there yet. Where does that leave us? We're just starting, aren't we, really? So we lay hold of eternal life. Then we hold fast to the word of God. Paul writing to Titus, another pastor, he's writing to leaders. He talks about them holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Holding fast the faithful word. Only two churches in Revelation, among the seven churches, only two got no rebuke from Christ. Only two. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 8. Here's Smyrna, the persecuted church. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those, any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And then chapter 3, verse 7, here's the faithful church, church of Philadelphia. To the angel, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength 
for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie indeed. I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him my na the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <coughs> Bible encourages us, instructs us, commands us, warns us to hold fast to the word of God. Every Bible truth that you and I hold dear is under attack from secularists, from atheists, from Darwinists, from humanists, oftentimes from scientists and academics. It's in our places of higher education or universities or colleges or schools, even some of the stuff that they're beginning to teach primary schools, particularly across the water, would make the hair stand on your head. Willy-minded liberal preachers has brought it into the church, into Bible schools and seminaries. They say that this book is to a large degree outdated. This is the 21st century. It's not culturally relevant anymore. It was for a time and a place that's no longer here and now. So therefore we can ignore large tracts of it. And we want to be trendy and fit in with the culture around us. Because if we don't, nobody will listen to us. They're not listening to them anyway. Those churches are trying to be culturally trendy. And who are avoiding the truths of Scripture are losing hand over fist is the reality of it, but they just don't get it. In society in general, attacks on our Christian belief is becoming much more vocal and virulent every single day. You hardly left a paper, watch a TV program or something that's attacking Christianity. By the way, this new movie that's coming out about Noah's Ark it's the biggest load of rubbish. I've read something about the background of it and what possibly is going to be in it. Listen, let me tell you, do not waste your money on it. It is absolute garbage. It has nothing to do with the scriptural truths of the Bible. Nothing. Far from it. But Christianity is under attack. Continually. The Bible continually under attack. This is why we have got to hold fast to the word of God. If your worldview is not based on the word of God, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You're not. You'll buy under the pressure and you'll cave in and you'll compromise. 
But if it's based on the word of God, you will make it if you stand and hold fast to the word of God. You say, well, people will laugh at me. They'll think I'm stupid. So be it. So be it. This is the truth. And it doesn't change. The world's opinions change continually. But this doesn't change. You know, I read something in the paper yesterday. And I, thought, I said to Sally, isn't that good? I read where in Australia, they have discovered millions, or is it 1.2 million cubic miles of fresh water under the seabed. Under the seabed. Now what does it say? See, the evolution is a great argument about, about Noah's Ark and the flood. Where did all that water come from? What does it say? The fountains of the deep were broken up. <laughs> what we're discovering now, there are fountains in the deep. There's table water underneath the very seabed. Of course, they'll try to explain all of that away. But we knew there was fountains in the deep from Genesis, didn't we? Bible doesn't change. doesn't have to change. God doesn't have to change his word. Because it wasn't speculation. It wasn't guesswork. It was the truth. The absolute truth. Nothing but the truth. And this is why we have got to hold fast to it. On a personal level, you've got to hold fast to what you're believing for. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Isn't that a lovely verse? He who promised is faithful. He can keep his side of the bargain. But we've got to hold fast. We've got to keep believing. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. Therefore do not cast away your confidence which has great reward. For you have need of endurance or patience or perseverance that means. So that after you have done the will of God you may receive the promise. It's that bit after you have done the will of God. When you have done what you know to do according to the word. From that point on, that's when you need patience, perseverance, endurance. Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. It just kept on going. Somebody says a great oak is just a little nut that's held its ground. You hold your ground. You keep persevering. You keep holding fast. What has been the promise that God has given to you? I don't know. He didn't give it to me. He gave it to you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it's genuine? Do you say, yes, I believe that God gave me that promise. It was clear. I believed it. But how long ago was that? A year ago? 10 years ago? 20 years ago? Still holding fast to it? Or do we let it slip and slide? Oh, it hasn't happened. Probably never happened. It's been too long. See, this is why the Bible encourages us to hold fast that which we have in James. James 
chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, endurance, perseverance, that is. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. But let patience have its perfect work. Let it mature you. Let it ripen you. You buy those bananas in Tesco and they're as hard as rocks, aren't they? And you have to let them lie for about a week before you can actually eat them because they haven't been matured. Of course, they do that deliberately, as we all know, so that they can travel for a while because they weren't plucked of a tree yesterday. Sure, they weren't. Probably weeks ago, maybe. And there's going to be some things that we're believing for and trusting for and it just hasn't matured yet. But while we're waiting, while we're persevering, let us be matured. Let our thinking and our attitudes, let that mature. James 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So you've got to hold fast to the word of God. And then finally, you've got to lay hold of or hold fast to your destiny in God because every one of us has got a destiny in God. God has got a plan for us for all of eternity. Clifford, through the prophetic word to Yule this morning, was looking beyond time into eternity. Aren't you God's got a, got a plan that will outlast time, that will go into eternity? See, starting well is one thing, finishing well is an entirely different thing. Don't let go. Finish what you've started. King Saul started out in humility, ended up in pride. Whenever Saul, as a young man, whenever the prophet prophesied over him, told him that he was going to be king, in a very short space of time, the anointing came upon him and he began to prophesy. And he says, is Saul also among the prophets? But when it came time for Samuel to go and to, in a sense, commission him. If you read the story, you know what he did? He ran and hid among the stuff. He didn't think he was up to the job. And so in humility, maybe in fear, he ran and hid and had to go find him. Now, if you had kept that attitude... 
He started out well. Anointed. Prophesying. Humble. But sadly, he didn't finish well. Pride began to rise up. And he was not a very good king in the end. It was hard on his people. It was moody, vindictive. Wanted to kill David on several occasions. Would have killed his own son. And it got to the stage, warning after warning after warning, it got to the stage where God had enough. And God said to Samuel, I've finished with Saul. I'm taking the kingdom from him. I'm going to give it to another. Saul was to kill the Amalekites. God had told him prophetically through Samuel to kill the Amalekites for what they had done to Israel, to spare no one, not even the animals, and to kill Agag, the king. He said, wait for me seven days till I come. Would he do that? No. He was lifted up in his pride and his power. And so... He began to slaughter some of the Amalekites, but not them all. Spared the king. Spared the animals, the best of the animals. And so Samuel comes to see if, check out to see if he'd done everything he was asked to do. He says, yes, I've done it. And Samuel says, well, what's, what's the lowing of the cows I hear in my ear? What, what's that about? Oh, he says, that's the people. He says that they spared some of them to make a sacrifice unto God. Samuel says, obedience is better than sacrifice. He didn't do what God told you to do. And God's going to take the kingdom from you. Samuel went to turn around and he grabbed Samuel by the coat the skirt of his garment. And as Samuel walked it, tore a piece off. And Samuel used that as a prophetic illustration. Basically said, just the way you tore that piece of my skirt, God is going to tear the kingdom from your hands and he's going to give it to another. It's in 1 Samuel 15. If you read on towards the end of that book, you'll find that Saul and Mount Gilboa, Saul and his three sons died there fighting the Philistines. In fact, he committed suicide. He fell on his own sword. He was, he was wounded, seriously wounded. He said to his armor bearer, kill me, I don't want to fall into the hands alive because they'll torture me, these Philistines. And his armor bearer wouldn't do it. So he fell on his own sword. And then his armor bearer fell on his sword. Starting one thing, finishing is another thing. 
Got to hold fast to that which we have. Let no man take our crown. King Solomon. He started out in wisdom, ended up in foolishness. Had an unusual start to life, hadn't he? Second son of Bathsheba. First little child died. Within a few days, without a name. David was heartbroken. But you know the story of him and Bathsheba? Took her to be his wife. Process of time. Another baby's born. Solomon. Special plan for Solomon. God was going to use him. Gave this child great promises. So he grew up. God comes and says, what do you want me to give you? He says, give me wisdom to rule this people. Didn't ask for riches. Didn't ask for power. Asked for wisdom. Wonderful. Wonderful. Great start. Couldn't ask God for a better thing. Because you have not asked for wisdom, because you have not asked for riches, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give you riches. I'll give you much more than you asked for. But you got your priority right. You asked for wisdom. Wonderful. Couldn't get a better start. Move along his life. He's in power. He's fabulously wealthy. He builds a great temple for God. Thousands and thousands and thousands, something like 200,000 people working on it for seven years to get this magnificent temple built. Didn't have to raise an offering for it. He had much money in the coffers through what David left and what he had accumulated. He was able just to build it. Then he built a great palace for himself. Took 13 years in building it. Now his head is getting big. People's coming from all over the world to seek out his wisdom. Even the queen of Sheba came. And when she saw this man and his wealth and his status and his wisdom, it took her breath away. She was breathless. And she was no slouch. <laughs> she came with a lot of goods for him too. And then he did the, all, what all the other kings did. He began to multiply his riches, multiply wives unto himself. Of course, there was a reason for that. It wasn't just because of love. He was making trade agreements with the nations all around him. He had 700 wives of noble birth, 300 concubines. That's a thousand women to handle. That's some job, Willard, isn't it? You've got one. Imagine a thousand. But you see, if he married daughters of kings and queens and so forth, then the trade agreements would be good. He was no dozer, as we say. 
would open up trade all over the then known world. Trouble was, he shouldn't have been doing that. God didn't want him to do that. But he did it anyway. Because now he's proud. He's powerful, fabulously wealthy. He can do whatever he likes. But he didn't end well. Yes, he was gifted. Yes, he wrote thousands of proverbs, wrote hymns, all kinds of things. Great philosopher. Understood just about everything there was to talk about. He'd have been some guest at your dinner party. But then he got to the stage where multiplying all these wives, all these foreign wives with their foreign gods, that it turned his heart away. And even though he was going through the motions of worshiping the one true and living God, on the feast days he did that. But his heart wasn't in tune with that one true and living God. Because all these other gods of all these other wives that were surrounding him. Yes, he wrote the book of Proverbs. Yes, Song of Solomon. Wonderful, beautiful book. But also Ecclesiastes. And most believe, and we're not sure of this, but most believe it was written towards the end of his life. And when you read it, He's cynical. He's cynical. Something 38 times is all his vanity. Futile, worthless, chasing the wind was a term he used. It was all under the sun but the book of Ecclesiastes. Seeing things as a worldly man would see it. book of Proverbs is above the sun, seeing things from God's standard. But now he's old and he's become cynical. He's become cold in his heart. He didn't end up well. You know, we're very familiar with the story of Gideon and his band of 300 in Judges 7, aren't we? We've read that story from Sunday school days. That's a wonderful story which I don't have to even go into today. But do you ever read the next chapter? If I had to stop there, the story of Gideon, if it just had to stop there, it would have been wonderful for Gideon. But it didn't stop there. That's the one we remember. Yes, he gets in the roll call of faith because of what he did. Wonderful. But in Judges chapter 8, listen to what happens. After that great battle, after the 300 whipped the 32,000 Midianites, in Judges 8 verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. The reason why it's called the book of Judges is because Israel went through a very lengthy period of worshipping God, backsliding, worshipping other gods, crying out unto God for deliverance. God would raise up a man or on occasions a woman to deliver them. And then for a while they'd worship God again. Then they'd backslide. 
and worship the other gods than cry unto God. Listen on for hundreds of years. Dark period in Israel's history. And God would raise up these men or women and they were called judges. Deliverers. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. If he had to just stop there, if he had to said nothing more at that point, would have ended up a different story. But he didn't. He didn't. Listen. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and pendants and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and beside the chains that were around the camel's necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod, a golden ephod, and set it up in his city. Orphra, and all the Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon unto his house. Ah, if only he had stopped, said, God will rule over you. That's enough reward for me. Thank you very much. But he looked at all the gold, and he covered it the gold. Now it could be argued maybe his intention was good. Maybe his motive was good. could be argued to make this golden ephod because they'd lost the original ephods. could be argued but the Bible makes it clear it was a tragic mistake because what happened the people began to worship it. They played the heart out with it. It became a god to them. If you read on even in the next chapter, you'll find that when Gideon died, the people immediately went back to Baal worship. Maybe they would not have done that if he hadn't made that golden ephod that they began to worship as an idol. Because it's easy for me to move from one idol to another idol. So what am I saying? Starting one thing, finishing is another. But let me end with this. And this is where there's hope. You like to end with hope, don't you? Peter started out brilliantly, didn't he? What a man. What a leader. <laughs> Fearless. In that garden, he was going to cut the head of that servant. But then he messed up, didn't he? big time even denying that he ever knew Jesus at the Lord's most desperate moment when he needed friends and they deserted him and Peter denied he ever knew him top of messing up big time 
But it didn't end there, sure it didn't. Jesus met them when they came back from that empty fishing expedition after the resurrection. And Jesus took him aside and talked to him. He said, now when you're converted, he says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then Peter went on from that to be filled with the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost to preach that great sermon that 3,000 souls were saved. And he never looked back. In the first half of the book of Acts, it's all about Peter. Second half's all about Paul. First half's all about Peter, isn't it? He's in everything. He ended up well. Ended up as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ, but he ended up well, didn't he? He ended up well. Hell fast to that which he had. Nobody stole his crown. So what I'm saying this morning, don't let go. End well. If you keep holding on to the Lord, you will end well. No matter what you go through, you will go through it and come through it and end up well if you keep holding fast to the Lord and holding fast to his word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.